we want to see everything up front. So we want to see our, our animation up front. We want to see our lighting up front. We want rather than shooting in physical space, we're acting and shooting in a virtual space so that the director has the opportunity to make all the important decisions before we start spending the big bucks of making an animated movie. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Jinko Goto's love for animation began as a child in Japan. But as someone who didn't draw, she could never have guessed that she would go on to produce some of the largest animated blockbusters of all time, from Finding Nemo and Fantasia 2000 to Mortal Kombat and Space Jam, among many, many others. The realization that animation could be a career path didn't come until she was studying engineering at Columbia University, where she stumbled on a computer programming course. So well, let's jump right in. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, growing up in Japan. Yeah, so I was born in Kobe, and I left Japan when I was eight. So the schools in Japan start in the spring. So we left that summer after I started my third grade, and we moved to um, Pasadena in California. And your passion for animation really started when you were a little kid, right? Yes. The very first movie I saw was Laid in the Tramp. And uh, my dad had been already uh, spending a lot of time in the U.S. And we knew as little kids that we would eventually end up being here. So watching that film had a tremendous impact on me. First of all, I loved dogs since I was a little kid. So watching a film for the first time in your life and the movies about dogs and about America. So, and the fact that it was animated made everything so magical. So it had a huge influence on me. And um, I think it was shortly after that, I met um, Osamu Tezukawa, who was the creator of Astro Boy. Um, somehow, my dad got to know him, and he took my sister. I have a younger sister by a year, and I have an older cousin um, that kind of grew up with us when we were in Japan, and she was like six years older than me. And my, I remember my dad taking my sister, my cousin, and my mom, and we went to go visit um, Tezukawa's town. And he had his animation studio upstairs of his house, and I believe the downstairs was his medical office. He was a doctor at the beginning. So when I m- met and saw his work, I mean, I was just like blown away. I was like, okay, this is, this is what I got to do when I grow up. But um, my dad said, remember, he was a medical doctor before he became an animator. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of stuck with me was that as much as, you know, he encouraged us to do whatever we wanted to do. He wanted my sister and me to be professionals. And, you know, being an animator or, you know, being an animation, I don't think he saw it as a profession. I'm, I'm curious, um, when you saw Lady in the Tramp as a child, was that 
in Japanese or was that in English? It must have been in Japanese. I suspect it was dubbed. Okay. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, well, I'm curious because I know that when uh, when I came to Canada, I was about the same age. I was 10. And watching movies, specifically animated movies and cartoons, was a huge way in which I learned the language. And I was wondering if you experienced any of that once you actually came to the U.S. or even when you were still at home, if you started watching and consuming content in that other language. Well, we didn't consume any content in the English language until we came here. Mm-hmm. And we came here, so we came here in the summer, and um, I don't recall watching much TV that summer because my mom really wanted us to keep up with our Japanese schoolwork. Mm-hmm. And um, we went to summer camp um, that was run by um, a local Presbyterian Church during the day. I think the summer camp was like, you know, my guess is it was about three, four hours long, and then having come home and having to do our Japanese homework. Mm-hmm. So I don't recall watching much TV that summer, but I know we did, we did watch a lot of things growing up, and there were things that were just odd to me. I remember there's a, a deodorant commercial that was on the air, and I must have been probably, you know, maybe a year later. And it's, it's um, a lady octopus. And in Japan, you know, we think that octopuses have legs. We don't think they have arms, right? So I remember watching this TV commercial, and I didn't know what deodorant was as, as a kid. And I see this commercial, this animated commercial of, um, of this um, octopus lady. And she's putting deodorant. And I was like, what is that all about, you know? (laughs) And, uh, you know, the Charlie Brown um, specials were, you know, dear to my mom. And and we watched those a lot. So, you know, your your father had clearly indicated early on that you had to be somewhat practical in your career choices. So I know that you ended up at Columbia studying engineering, right? Right. So... I ended up going to the engineering school and um, realized that, you know, I don't really like engineering, but I was good at math. So I ended up being an applied math major. And um, I think, you know, my dad expected us, one of us to be a doctor, another one to be a lawyer, maybe, you know, a university professor, but definitely not a filmmaker. (laughs) So how do you go from, uh, you know, applied math to working in computer graphics and animation. Yes, so junior in college, there was a class called Introduction to Computer Graphics, and it was in the civil engineering department. And I thought, well, this is really cool. You know, um, I learned how to program um, in college, and so I thought, wow, you could actually program to do graphics work? So I'm taking this class. Took the class, fell in love with it, and I remember going to the professor that taught the class and said, who does this work here at Columbia? And um, he said, there's a professor up at the medical school, um, and he's actually, you know, is probably, you know, one of the foremost guys in this industry doing up at the medical school. So I got his name. 
And I called him up and I said, um, I want to do more of this. And so he said, come on over. And I met him, met his wife, met his son. And he said, why don't you come and work for me? So I was very fortunate because it was like I stumbled into this, fell in love with it, and I wanted more. And it was there in front of me. So uh, I got out of college and went to work for Met at the medical school at Columbia. He was in the Department of Pharmacology, and he was doing a study of um, the interaction of um, DNA with carcinogens. And so I programmed for him, and we shot film. You know, back in those days, we were shooting 60 millimeter, and there was a camera that we had um, rigged onto a, a computer screen. Back then, it was, you know, those green screens. And we would shoot frame by frame overnight, basically. That's how long it took to compute. And then I would take that piece of film to the lab. And then, you know, we optically printed to add the colors. So I want to make sure I understand this because the leap here to me is astronomical. So you learn how to program computers to draw things. And then you end up working for a medical doctor that's studying basically things that poison us. Well, he, he, I don't know how he ended up in the pharmacology department um, because he himself was a physicist by training. But, you know, they were, you know, back in those days, you know, this was like in the early 80s and people came from everywhere that did Mm -hmm. computer graphics. I mean, outside from um, Utah where people like um, Ed Catmull graduated and taught, um, I'm trying to think, you know, most of the people doing graphics work came from um, all kinds of um, technical backgrounds because, you know, computer science at that point wasn't even a very popular major in college. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, also, there was also engineering. And I remember computer science, I don't think, was even a department at the engineering school when I was there. It was You were a double E major and you learned how to program. And um, I think computer science probably came maybe a year after I got out. So, so how did you go from working with this um, this doctor to to working in, in film? Well, so the neat thing was, you know, working at Columbia as a staff, we could go to the school for free. And so um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do outside from you know working for this guy. And my parents were like going. You go to grad school, and the professor at the engineering school was come and get a PhD with us and apply math. I'm like, I don't think so. This is really not. First of all, I don't really want to do this, and second of all, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> no. <laughs> so he said, you should just go wherever you want to go. I said, then I'm going to apply to film school, and so um, I applied for the film school and got in their MFA program. And that's, you know, that's what happened. It was like, it was like one good accident after another. And um, I think I was very fortunate, you know, that it was something I wanted to do and I had no idea how I was going to get there. But one good thing led to the next. And, um, you know, when I think back, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> um, so when you when you went to film school, was the intention like clearly you loved movies and you wanted to make movies? But did you have an idea of how you wanted to make those films? If if you wanted to direct or if you wanted to produce or if you wanted to do something else? I in my mind, I kind of think that you go to film school because you want to make a movie as like a director or a writer. But I don't know if anybody really goes to film school because they want to be a producer. So I'm kind of curious how how you kind of came to be where you are today. Well, so I went to film school and at that point, Columbia was very um, theory driven. Mm. A lot of analysis classes, a lot of criticism classes. um, And the program there was pretty much, I mean, you did a little bit of everything. uh, And then you decided what you were doing as your thesis project. And I knew I wanted to do animation, but I knew I couldn't do it myself. And I don't draw. And back then, you know, trying to do anything on the computer would have taken forever. And assuming you had a computer, you could actually get to generate images. Um, so instead, I did. It, I directed and um, produced a documentary. And through that process, and also having taken the producing class, I realized what I didn't want to do was be a director. But what mm-hmm. I loved doing was uh, producing. So that made it very clear to me that I wanted to figure out how to be a producer. And, and after school, you actually set up, um, you went into commercials before you started making films, right? Correct. Yeah. So, yeah. So coming out of Columbia, you know, with a degree in film degree, uh, with an MFA in film, back then, I mean, it wasn't like get a job right away. And, um, and I thought, well, I can always go back to being a programmer, I guess. And the companies that were hiring were all aerospace companies. So I actually got an offer and I was supposed to start working at, at Northrop hmm. as a programmer. And um, I think it was Friday before um, the Monday I was supposed to show up. I called the headhunter and said, I can't do this. So... I thought, okay, well, now I know that this is not what I'm going to do. It became, well, what, I know, how do I get to, you know, doing what I want to do? And I had made this documentary, and my dad was really, really proud of me making this doc. And it went on a circuit to some festivals and won some awards. So he reached out to his friends that were um, journalists in Japan, and, you know, as a dotting a dotting father, you know, he wanted to give me a lot of press. So I got written up quite a bit. And so then um, at the time, this was like in 1982, 83, the largest advertising agency in, in the world at the time was um, a Japanese ad agency by the name of Dentsu. And they were um, hired by all their clients, a lot of their clients, um, to produce content for Expo 85. And in back in those days, you know, expos were all about showing the latest, greatest technology that your country has built, right? And all these um, Japanese electronic companies, they were all trying to get into computers. And Zensu, the agency, was very clever. And they realized, you know, here are all these clients that want to show their technology. They thought, what better than doing um, 
large format films using computer graphics. So again, another you know situation where I'm very fortunate. I'm getting coverage about my documentary, but then I'm talking about my love for computer graphics and animation. So I got a call from an agency, and that's how I got into advertising. Wow. But you did you start your own firm as well, or did you go and work for somebody else right off the bat? So I, I, worked, I worked for the ad agency um, for a couple of years, and then um, I had an incredible, uh, again, another situation where um, one of the managing directors of the agency um, wanted me to go do my thing. So he reached out to a close friend of his um, that had an entertainment conglomerate in Japan, and he said to his friend, he said, you should meet this girl or this woman, and um, you should let her start her own company, and you should finance it. (laughs) So here I was, you know, 27 and forty thousand dollars to go start my own production company. Oh, that's amazing! Now, at, at this point, were you working in the U.S. or were you working in Japan? I was here. Okay. And when I was working in agency, um, I was in Japan like every once a month. Oh wow! And it was great because you know I hadn't been really you know having moved here when I was eight. Um, even though we spoke Japanese in, at home. And I didn't really spend much time in Japan growing up. So it was really nice, you know, to be able to go back as a working professional and be able to spend time in Japan. But it was interesting because, you know, at that, at that point, uh, the agency hired women to work at the agency. But first of all, they didn't hire anyone that were college graduates. They were all junior college graduates. And they came from basically um, daughters of clients and and broadcasting, you know, related. I mean, it was all very, you know. Who you know. Yeah, who you know. And most of them went there because they wanted a good husband. And, um, you know, at the time, you know, if you worked at Dentsu, you know, it was one of the top companies to work for in Japan. So, yeah, if you came from a good home and, your parents wanted to make sure that you married well. You know, that was one of the top com- companies that you went to work for after you got out of jun- junior college. So it was really interesting watching the whole cultural difference, you know, of being raised in the U.S. and being educated in the U.S. and then going back to, you know, your birthplace and seeing that the role of women there were so different. And, I mean, I'm assuming that... They- I mean, when I think about, you know, engineering, especially, it, it, it's always so difficult. You hear about, you know, we need to get more girls into STEM. So I can only imagine that even when you were in college and being in the engineering computer department, you probably were in the minority when it came to women. And, you know, here you are working as a professional in an industry where, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, it's not expected that this is a career for you. It's sometimes a, a stopgap for women as they're looking for something else. And then you go to lead your own agency, which I can only imagine was like another kind of like first uh, f- for a very small minority. So you've always kind of been um, working as the soul went out. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, being an immigrant, you know, 
and coming here as a child where no one looks like you and and you're the minority, um, you kind of get used to it. Yeah, you definitely feel alone at times. Um, but when you're passionate and, you know, you're driven, you're kind of fearless. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the, you know, great traits that I think was given to me by my father. And I want to come back to that uh, in a bit, but I, I want to kind of follow through on speaking about your career trajectory because you, I heard you tell a really funny story about um, Roger Rabbit <laughs> um, and how you had been shooting something with Bon Jovi when you saw that Roger Rabbit was playing and that how that kind of changed your life yet again. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So yeah. So um, so when I set up the production company, you know. Most of the work I did was for Denson Agency, and I shot a lot of the commercials that were being shot here in the U.S. And um, back then, you know, having um, American and European um, celebrities to endorse um, Japanese product was also a a big business. And um, at the time, you know, Music video started really influencing um, commercials. Um, I, I think I was one of the first um, producers that brought music video um, directors into the Japanese um, production scene. And so um, the creative director on the Sanyo account said, "We, you know, we want to we want to get Bon Jovi to endorse Sanyo, and let's go shoot a commercial in New York." And so we hired um, um, Wayne Isham, who had been shooting a lot of the Bon Jovi um, music videos. And so we went to um, New, York, New York that summer. And, um, you know, when you're working with music video um, people back then, it was always not, it was all non-union and it was just crazy times. And... I think it must have been there three, four weeks, you know, between the prep and the shoot. I saw Roger Rabbit, this huge sign, Roger Rabbit, Radio City, Radio, um, Radio, Radio City Hall. And so it was Sunday afternoon, and I went and saw this movie. And I was just like, again, mind blown, like I had been seeing the Lady and Tramp, you know, when I was a little kid. And I thought, oh my God, what am I doing making commercials when I could be doing that? (laughs) Yeah, so I took a pivot turn um, literally a couple years later, you know. Um, And again, that was by another great coincidence. Um, One of my best friends um, was um, repping all the CG houses, did commercials like Bob Abel and Anibus and digital production. And, and because I was on the agency side and we had hired them, and then once I started my production company, I still hired those companies to do a lot of CG work. And so um, Sharon, one of my dearest friends, called me and said, I got this job for um, the company she's repping. And she said, the problem is, everyone's leaving and I need someone to produce this. So I was like, 
wow. <laughs> she said, I know you want to get into this, so um, is that something you want to do? And I said, absolutely. And um, at the time, I was shooting a cook. I was shooting a bunch of Coca-Cola commercial for Wayne Kennedy here. And I thought, well, why not? And didn't pay very much. And I was like shocked how little they paid, but I thought, why not the hell, you know? And so um, I did this, um, I produced this direct to um, video for Mortal Kombat. Um, they were, you know, the, the films had come out and they wanted to get into the home video space, um, franchising the brand. So I did that, and then I heard about Space Jam. So I thought, well, here's the team that did Roger Rabbit. I've got to go work on that film. <laughs> <laughs> and so I got hired to be their CG producer. Wow. So um, when, when you did the Mortal Kombat job, were you still doing commercials, or had at that point you've got, you'd kind of moved away from that altogether? I did, I did both for a little bit, you know, because, I mean, commercials pay a whole lot better than, you know, uh, working for a, a CG company. Mm-hmm. And so you you go to Space Jam, and, and that really changes your life, doesn't it? Oh, totally, totally, because then at that point, you know, now you're actually in the business working in films. And now CG is starting to become something, you know. Toy Story comes out, and, you know, people are wanting to integrate CG into animation. And then I guess the next kind of big step for you was Finding Nemo, right? Uh, well, I actually went to Disney for uh, a number of years before that and um, worked at Disney setting up um, what became the, the Secret Lab, but it was really um, the studio that um, produced um, Dinosaur. Mm. So I got to be part of that team, and then it transitioned to the Secret Lab when Disney acquired DreamQuest, which was a... BFX company, and we basically merged the two businesses together. And then 9-11 happened, and then I had to really think hard about, you know, life and what was important. And and I felt that, you know, leaving Disney was probably the right thing to do. Of course, I remember my mom going, you can't do that. You can't leave Disney. And I was like, no, I have to do that, you know. And I know my mom was very worried. Um, but luckily, Pixar called and said, hey, come on up here. You know, we're looking for producers. And I got to spend the whole day up there. And they said, what do you want to do? And um, I had met the Finding Nemo team. And I said, I'd love to work on this film. So I got hired to be their associate producer. Is it, um, I mean, you've, you've had so many kind of like small changes, large and small changes in, in your, the trajectory of your career over the course of your career. Is it ever scary to step away from something? I mean, I can only imagine how scary it would have been to, to step away from Disney at a time when, you know, your career is going in the right direction and you're making, working on the projects you want to work on, but it, and you mean you left without having like a fallback plan? Well, is that why is that a necessity, like creatively, or is it scary? Um, your gut just tells you it's just time to move on, you know. And I think you know I'm lucky because I don't I don't have to support a family, so um, I've been very fortunate. 
So I kind of live a pretty selfish life where I go, I don't want to do any more of this. I want to do something else. And I just move on. And I remember leaving Pixar and all my friends said, you should not leave. You've got look, you need to be vested on all your stock options. And I was like going, but I can sit here. They don't have another movie for me, at least for another handful of years. And I want to make movies. Uh, you know, you, you say you're selfish, but you're the least selfish person I know. <laughs> um, and, and I want to talk a little bit about the selflessness uh, of your career. Before we go back to talking about the, the work that you do, I want to talk a little bit about the other work that you do, which is all the advocacy work that you do. Um, when, I mean, I, I expect that, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about being an outsider and being, being an immigrant and um, often being the sole person that looks like you do. Can you talk a little bit about how your advocacy work started and when you really started to to push for change in the industry? Yeah, so it was the summer of 2013. An agent called me and said, I met these, these women that are um, relaunching women in animation. And the agent said, I, I think you should meet them. They're amazing women. And they really want to make change. And it occurred to me, there aren't that, that many women in the industry. And so I wanted to hear more about what they wanted to do. And it was also at a point in my life where I thought, I've been so successful. I'm so gr- grateful for the career I have. I want to pay back. And when I realized how few non-men in the business, I felt compelled. So I got involved and... Um, when I started hearing, you know, the stats about how many women were actually studying animation, but they were not, they were nowhere to be seen. I knew that was wrong. So I wanted to be part of how do I make that change? How can I help to make that change? What can I do to pay back and give opportunities so that women can succeed? And, and then, you know, once I got involved, I started realizing that I'm one of these fortunate people where I was kind of oblivious, uh, oblivious, even though there was a lot of racism and there was a lot of sexism growing up and, and working. I try to not let it bother me most of the time, but I realized that that wasn't a norm, that it was really external forces that actually stopped women from being in the business or entering the business. And so it became a very important work for me to help both externally and internally and identify what were the causes and what can we do as an, as an advocacy group to influence change. And I mean, the work that WIA has done over the years has been really astounding, um, but it's also changed, right? I mean, uh, the, the name itself says women in animation, but you advocate for more than just women. Yes. And that's because it all started with, you know, realizing that there was an inequality in gender, right? But it's more than that. There's um, an inequality for all underrepresented groups. So it became more important to me to advocate not just for gender parity, but we're calling it gender justice. And for me, being you know an immigrant and being a person of color, to also advocate for people of color. And that continues to expand because now we're 
seeing that it's not just about race or gender or color, but if you're disabled, if you're anything but basically, which I, or what I call norm is, you know, if you're not a white man. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you find that it's getting easier to do the work, or is it just as difficult as it was when thing when you started with the organization in 2013? It's getting easier in terms of people realizing that change is necessary, but to actually make that change and sustain that change, I think is getting a little easier. But we haven't turned a corner, and we're not at a place where we can just sustain change. You know, we're still fighting for that change in many aspects. And every year we see new problems or new challenges and new obstacles. And we're driven to um, identify that and come up with solutions and um, implement them. You know, last year was a good example with COVID, right? We were all getting ready for Annecy and then COVID hit. And we said, well, what are we going to do? You know, we can't stop doing our work. And Annecy was trying to figure out what they were going to do. But we said, we're going, to ch- we're going to do everything we're doing now to a virtual platform. Because we wanted to continue to do the work. And we knew we couldn't do it in person. So we quickly pivoted all our programming and our mentoring program to be virtual. And by doing that, it allowed us to go global faster. So... As hard as COVID was, it was also a blessing disguise in terms of being able to do the advocacy work that we were doing and really supporting globally. And then I remember we said, okay, we got to go virtual for Annecy. We told our whole program for that. And then Black Lives Matter happened. And we said, okay, we got to pivot that because that's far more important in terms of um, supporting the work we, we need to do to make change. So again, we pivoted our programming to really support the underrepresented in terms of people of color. And I mean, as you are um, doing all of this advocacy work, you're still continuing to work. I mean, you're still producing projects. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I love making movies. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the movies that you make. I mean, once you left um, um, Pixar and uh, after Finding Nemo, you started working almost entirely independently, right? Yes, I did. I mean, you know, for a while I was called the, the, the person that can come and fix a movie that was broken. But, you know, the stories that I'm involved in is also important. The stories that we tell. Mm-hmm. So I think it was back in 11, 2012, I was like, okay, I really want to be involved in stories that I believe in. And the way to do that as a producer is to sell a project and try and get financing. So that became my next big goal. And I was able to fulfill that goal, um, producing class for Sergio Pablos. Can you talk a little bit, uh, about like the the you talked to you you mentioned just in passing about coming in to fix movies. What does that even really entail? Um, well, typically, you know, uh, if you're working on non-studio film, films are under budgeted and um, you don't really have a, a strong support system within the production. 
So when things go array, things go really array. And usually the studio who's financing it or the bond company that's bonded it sees it going like, okay, this is a film or production that's gone off track, off the rails. And so I got known to be a person who can come in and say, okay, here's the problem, here's the solutions, and, and then implement them if they got approved. Do you think one of the reasons you're that 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 you're good at that is because you have this analytical sort of mathematical engineering brain? Oh, absolutely. Because I have, I think, um, I know how to solve problems. I can identify a problem, and um, I like problem solving. That is something that you know you're taught in engineering school, um, especially you know being an applied math major. That's all we do. And if you're a computer programmer, you know. A lot of what you do is that too. Yeah. You're debug, you know, you're debugging code and, you know, all that stuff. And, and so for something like Klaus, which is slightly different because you came on board right at the beginning and the goal was to get the project financed. How was that different from the work that you had done up until that point? Well, it was a new exciting challenge, right? Because I wanted to be involved in our production from day one rather than to come in and fix it. I want to, you know, get behind a, a film that I believed in, trying to get finance, and then help set it up. Um, the good news was that it happened. The bad news was it took a lot longer to finance. So I ended up having to take another job to produce um, Lego 2 for Warner Brothers, which was a great experience because I did want to go back and work at a studio and work on um, a sequel movie because... We've seen so many sequels that had come out over the years since I left Pixar. And so I was very curious to understand what it took to make a, a, a successful sequel. And that first Lego movie was such an incredible film that to be able to work with that team, Lord and Miller and Dan Lin and Lego and Warner Bros. to me was like the perfect job. And again, I wasn't looking for that job, but then Warner Bros. called and said, hey, we're looking for a producer that wants to come and work on Lego 2. So it was the timing where I was like, okay, Sergio, I'm not sure if we can get this um, class finance. I'm probably going to have to go get a job. And then miraculously, both things happened. Both things happened. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes all you need is a little bit of luck. I'm curious. So how do you, how do you select the projects that you're involved with? You know, you're at a point in your career where you're looking for new challenges and you, you're, you're focusing on storytelling and what, you're putting the messages that you're putting out into the world. So what do you look for when you start kind of like looking for the next job? Well, first of all, it's important that I work with filmmakers that I can really truly partner. So I'm very fortunate because I'm working with Mark Osborne again. Um, I went to work with Mark on The Little Prince and we had an amazing time working together. I believe in his storytelling vision I love the stories that he wants he wants to tell. So having that creative partner that has stories that they want to tell, and where you can be a partner to bring these stories to the screen, is something that brings me a lot of joy. Mm -hmm. And so today, it's really about the type of stories and the filmmaker more than anything. I'm curious. One of the things that we hear about, that, that at least in my mind, I always kind of think of is animation is this universal language, um, because you know often a lot of the films, 
can be told, the story can be told without any dialogue. So it crosses boundaries through language and culture. And you strike me as somebody that's always kind of straddled the culture as well, right? You know, a foot in the U.S., a foot in Japan. Um, you're an advocate for underrepresented, underrepresented minorities. So you're always kind of um, trying to push the boundaries culturally as well. Um, do you think that um, we're, that animation is moving more and more to be that sort of universal language that, you know, in my mind is something that's always been there, but maybe is not quite as realistic as I want it to be? Yes, and that's why the, the advocacy work that I do is, for me, personally, so important because I want I want stories being told by the represented because these stories are universal and and it shouldn't just be just Western filmmakers telling the, these stories, you know? They're wonderful, wonderful tales and legends and original stories that come from all around the globe. And those stories should be told, and animation is a great medium to um, tell those stories. Mm -hmm. If you had to do something different in your career, if you could go back and change something, would you change anything, or would you do anything differently? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, you know, um, if I didn't end up being a producer, I think I would have been a film editor, because I do... Like, um, I do love the craft of filmmaking and, and, and I think I could have, I, I think I would have made a pretty good editor. And since we're talking about the project that you're working on with Mark, um, this kind of dovetails into something else that I wanted to talk about. Um, technology is something that you've always kind of been at the forefront of that. Uh, you were, you were coming up just as, the, as CG was starting. Roger Rabbit was very groundbreaking. And then you work on Space Jam, which is also very groundbreaking. Finding Nemo, also very groundbreaking. You're always kind of like at the cusp of the next thing. I've heard you talk a little bit about virtual production, but I, I was wondering if you, we could talk a little bit about this because it's virtual production is this, buzzy thing that everybody's talking about, but I'm not quite sure if everybody really knows what it is. And I know for a fact you have a really great way of explaining what virtual production is. Yeah, so to answer your first question, um, you know, technology is a tool, right? So we all want to, what I love about animation is that animation is a marriage between art and science. And that science or technology is there to facilitate visual storytelling. And so we're always pushing that artistically, our vision of how to visualize storytelling and animation. And that's why, I that's why I love the medium. And so I loved CG when it first started. And then CG kind of has evolved now to a place where it's really a way to make series and features. But I, I also feel like we're kind of stuck where the work is starting to look all the same, meaning you can look at a movie that comes out of Disney or DreamWorks or Pixar. You kind of tell where it's coming from. And so we joined with Mark, you know, we talked about how we really wanted to push the visual storytelling component. So we started talking about how these pipelines are set up and how do you change that pipeline? Because I know I was part of building that pipeline, mm -hmm. the CG pipeline. And 
the CG pipeline was kind of laid out very similar to the 2D pipeline, but the big difference is that in 2D, you can draw anything, but in CG, you know, you have to make some fairly early commitments about what, what your characters are going to look like, um, what your environment's going to look like, because you got to physically build them, right? So we said, okay, in order to change that so that you're not stuck with something and you want to be able to iterate and, and explore through the whole process, that's when we realized what we need to do is come up with a way that's different than how traditional CG animation films have been made. So watching, you know, these highly complex visual effects movies and seeing how they were starting to evolve the usage of virtual production, we said, why not do the same thing in animation? And so that's how we quickly decided that we have to figure out a way to implement that into the animation pipeline. Now, what we learned was that, you know, doing virtual production for VFX like The Mandorian or Jungle Book is very, very expensive. So we said we need a solution that allows us to do virtual production, but a lot less money. Mm. So we started looking at real-time rendering. We started looking at all kinds of tools that were out there but what we learned was reaching out to, to the younger artists who have basically picked up tools because the tools is an end to me right so they have they have this piece of drawing that they want to bring to life and they're using the tools to bring it to life and we started learning about all kinds of software programs that we didn't even know about a couple of years ago and now they're part of our tool set so we're working with artists that are artistically trained and they're truly artists, and they're just using technology as a tool. Mm-hmm. And that's what's allowed us to create a virtual production pipeline. We're still, we're still creating this, but basically the, the notion is we want to see everything up front. So we want to see our, our animation up front. We want to see our lighting up front. We want basically, rather than shooting in physical space, we're acting and shooting in a virtual space. So that's how we're defining virtual production so that the director has the opportunity to make all the important decisions before we start spending the big bucks of making an animated movie. Mm-hmm. Was having already sort of started on that pipeline before the pandemic started, did that help you kind of stay with the project throughout the pandemic as well? Oh, totally, because I mean, we had artists all around the globe and we were communicating through the computer virtually, you know? Mm -hmm. So when COVID hit, it was a matter of everybody everybody that was in New York to go home with their computers, but everybody else were already in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a pretty easy transition for us. I I know it hasn't been for everyone, but because we were already headed that way, saying, how do we create a virtual space to make our movies? It was a it was a very smooth pivot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I wanted to finish by asking you about, you know, so as somebody who's been in the industry for so many years and has had such an illustrious career. And I know that you do a lot of outreach to to students and, and you're always putting yourself out there and sharing knowledge and information. But what's what would be one piece of uh, information or one one piece of advice that you would give to a young person who is wanting to get into Um, animation and into making movies? There isn't a single path. 
but it does take um, passion and perseverance and a lot of hard work. But there isn't a single path. And so you can't compare yourself to someone else. You know, you can only measure yourself in terms of how well you're doing or not doing. And, um, you know, what's important to me right now is that the cost of education has become so astronomical that, you know, we want to find alternative path pathways, especially for the underrepresented um, communities because they can't afford to go and get a, a four-year college, college degree, let alone, you know, a master's, you know. And if you have the talent, you don't need that. So um, we're starting to work with high schools and, and figuring out um, alternative pathways and trying and really rallying um, the industry to really look at that talent pool. Because if we want true diversity and representation, we have to dig that deep. You know, it starts out with kids being influenced that this is a, that, and, and influencing the parents that this is really an industry. It wasn't an industry when I was growing up like it is today. I mean, there are real jobs out there. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of jobs out there being posted all around the globe for animation. So it's, it's a real job. And, um, and parents shouldn't be afraid that these kids are not going to be able to get work. And the job, you know, comes in all forms. You can be a great artist. You can be a great technologist, technician. There's jobs in production. There's jobs in finance. There's jobs in, you know, recruiting. I mean, you know, if you want to be in this industry, there's all kinds of jobs. And those opportunities really exist. And that was my conversation with producer Jinko Guto. Jinko is currently working with Mark Osborne on Escape from Hat, a new animated feature which is due for release in 2022. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits, as well as additional production support by Michael Edland. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.